You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Okay, you guys, this is an exciting one. Both Dr. G and I got to sit down in person with Dr. Ruchi Gupta. You may know her from the Netflix series Rotten, where she appears in the peanut problem episode. Or you may know her name from the article that came out recently, or recently in January 2019. It was the prevalence and severity of food allergies among U.S. adults. And it stated that 1 in 10 adults have food allergies. A little bit more about Dr. Gupta. She has more than 15 years experience as a board-certified pediatrician and health researcher. She's currently serving as the director of the Science and Outcomes of Allergy and Asthma Research Program, also known as SOAR, and she's actively involved in clinical and community-based research. We talked to Dr. Ruchi Gupta about the prevalence of food allergies in kids and in adults, so we do unpack a little bit more about what her study was about. And we cover popular topic of allergy testing because, you know, that's always full of question marks. So we talk about when, how, why, and the nitty gritty of allergy testing. We also talk about how allergies impact teens, how their peer support is vital, and some positives of having food allergies. We cover a ton in this interview, and we actually covered a ton in general. So this is part one of two with Dr. Gupta. In the second part, we're going to be talking more about early introduction, so when you feed babies peanuts, and we get into some more fun stuff, so stay tuned for that. Here we are, live together in one room. We are here at Fab Blog Con and we have Dr. Ruchi Gupta with us and we're going to talk food allergies and we just came from her lecture so we probably have a lot of fresh questions in our mind but we're going to start talking about prevalence. I think that's the place we're going to launch off and we'll see where this wonderful conversation takes us. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, so food allergy prevalence is something that you know, we hear about as increasing uh, in the last couple decades. And our recent studies, the one in pediatrics from December 2018, found that about 8% of kids have food allergy. So that's about 1 in 13 or 2 in every classroom. So it impacts a lot of kids. And uh, the top 9 now, we call it food allergies, include peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, finfish, milk, egg, soy, wheat, and now sesame is also one of the top food allergens. So, you know, it impacts kids of all ages. There's some that more kids outgrow, uh, things like wheat, soy, egg, uh, milk. It is very, very high in the young age population, the zero to five. And then a good amount do outgrow it, but even by teen years, there's about 16% prevalence of milk allergy. So milk is sticking around. And then, of course, peanut, tree nut, shellfish, finfish are for that, you know, about 15 to 20% outgrow. Uh, then we actually, for the first time, looked at it in a, the adult population. And this was really exciting data that came out in JAMA Network Open and earlier this year. And what we found was really surprising that about, you know, one in 10 or 10% of adults also have food allergy. And of those, 
only about half are getting diagnosed. So it's a big push that it's really important uh, to get a proper diagnosis by an allergist uh, for your food allergy. But the top foods are pretty much the same in a little different order. Shellfish is the top food impacting almost 3% of adults and then peanuts and, and milk follow that. And then the rest that we discussed earlier. The really interesting fact in adults is that almost half of adults said that they developed a food allergy as an adult. So they are developing new onset food allergies in adulthood. And that was something that was we hear about. I think we hear about anecdotally, but we had never quantified. So knowing that so many adults are developing adult onset food allergy is uh, something we really need to look into more. Yeah, and I think that the question that I always get asked in clinic is, should everyone get food allergy tested with those kind of statistics and that kind of data? And I think both of us talking together about this topic, I think will be really informative for people as to why we shouldn't be testing every single person, every single child or every single adult for food allergies. Absolutely. You know, the testing that we have currently you know, the skin prick test or that specific IgE, they're just, you know, they've got a great negative predictive value, but a very poor positive predictive value. So just randomly testing or panel testing is, is absolutely not right to do because you have a 50-50 chance of actually having that food allergy. So it has to be really specific to your history and what you ate. And if you can't identify what food that may have been, uh, then, you know, your next option or, or the best, the gold standard, and especially for adults, is really a food challenge. Right, right. And that, and just to clarify, when we're talking about positive predictive value and negative predictive value, just that when we do these skin tests and when we do these blood tests, we're talking about if you have something that we call a false positive, that means that your test looks like it's positive, but you're not truly allergic to that food, which means that you're not at risk of an anaphylactic reaction. You're not at risk of having a negative outcome from that food. So we don't want you to avoid that food because you're okay. Exactly. And you can eat that food in your diet. And what I've seen happen so many times is they're eating the food and then they get a positive test and then they take it out of their diet. Mm -hmm. And what we don't know is if you're sensitized, we call that sensitized, a positive test, uh, and, and you take it out of your diet, what will that do? You know, will you develop it? You know, is there something to be said about keeping that food in your diet while you're sensitized? So very, very important. Uh, I feel like more allergists, even though probably uh, not enough, but more and more are doing oral food challenges and, and using it as a diagnostic tool, especially in adults and older children. I know it's a little scary after you've had an allergic reaction for parents to, and that's the problem with mm -hmm. our testing currently, is if you've had an allergic reaction and you go to see an allergist and you've just you know, seen your child go through you know, this allergic reaction, you don't necessarily want to put them in the position of having to eat the food again through an oral food challenge. And so how do you make that diagnosis as accurately as you can? Right. And I think that the oral food challenges are being used in different ways. But I think that the most important concept that you brought to light is just that if we have that history that's confusing, the only way to really negate that confusion is by doing an oral food challenge um, in the right situation, especially when someone thinks that they're reacting to something. The test might be negative, but they're still scared. That's a good option for an oral food challenge just to make sure or vice versa. 
right? And exactly what you said, if you have a very clear history, right? If you know I ate cashews and then I had an allergic reaction and then your test is positive, then of course, you know, you can make the diagnosis just based on that. Right. Based on the testing. Exactly. Court, do you have any questions? Well, I just wanted to actually go back about the adults who were diagnosed because I found that really interesting. So I do get on my blog a lot of adults who come, you know, they're trying to navigate like how they're newly diagnosed. But I'm curious about, you said 50% of the adults that you had were diagnosed and the other 50% weren't diagnosed. What was it that you were looking at to say that they have allergies? Great question. So what we did in a survey, and you know, it is a survey of 50,000 adults across the United States, so we were not able to do oral food challenges on all of them. So what we relied on was a series of symptom questions. So we would ask, what are you allergic to? Say that you say peanut. And then we would say, uh, what reaction have you had when you eat the peanut? And they would really go through their symptoms in every organ system, whatever happened. And then we would ask about diagnosis. You know, so have you been diagnosed? What testing have you had done? We would ask about emergency department visits and medication use. So basically what we did is we had an expert panel together to define what they would consider symptoms of a true food allergy. And we were very, very careful. So if, you know, because so much can happen when you eat a food, right? You have intolerances, you have oral allergies, syndrome, you have uh, gluten sensitivity, you have celiac, you know, so there are so many other things that people may not know what's happening to them, they just feel bad when they eat the food. So we were trying our best, if there were only GI symptoms, stomach pain, etc., we would not include those people, even though it could potentially be real, but we would take them out and put them into a bucket of intolerances. Any oral symptoms alone, we would take out and put into oral allergy syndrome. So we tried our best to pull out what really looked like convincing symptoms based on the food they were describing and the symptoms they had. And then we put them into a category we called convincing. Uh, So we have three categories, really. We have reported, you know, a lot of the headlines were one in five are reporting a food allergy because over 20% of adults actually reported having a food allergy. And I think this number is really important because I didn't mean that they're wrong, but one in five adults are giving up food because something negative happens to them. And that's a big deal. And then if you take it down to only 5% are getting diagnosed, then you have all these adults who are walking around avoiding foods. And it's, we all know how hard it is to take foods out of your diet. So I think some of the big points there are, you know, with one in five reporting some kind of symptom to eating a food, one in 10 reporting convincing symptoms, we really need to encourage everyone to actually go to a physician and do whatever the allergist feels based on your history and then potential testing to confirm what condition you may have. Yeah, I think that's what I remember when I first saw the article come out and it was like, how do like that many people have food allergies? I must have encountered some in my life and I haven't yet. (laughs) So it was really interesting to read and I was curious, what do people think an allergy is? And I think a lot of that comes back to us creating more awareness of what is a true allergy and understanding that. And I think it's a shame that people take food out of their lives when they are doing it without really understanding why. Do you have any studies or have you looked at how you can 
get that population to the allergist or to their doctor? I think it's a lot of awareness and pushing that message out there. And I feel like if adults, you know, some of the foods they may, it doesn't really bother them to take it out of their diet. You know, if there are some of the more minor foods that you don't really need. Uh, but if it's some of the major foods, it's really, really important to, to get a diagnosis so that you can either add it back in or know what you have. And most importantly, so you can know how to manage it. Because if it is a true food allergy, you need to have a plan. You need to carry your epinephrine, you know, for potential anaphylaxis. And all of those are, are really important steps. And what we found was that less than a third of the convincing were had epinephrine, you know, because many of them weren't going to see a doctor. So, I mean, it all makes sense, but it's something that I think we have to push out uh, just with public campaigns and physicians, you know, encouraging their patients to go see an allergist. And I think the next population that I was really interested in were teens, because you gave some really good data on teens, and that's just such a special population in the food allergy community. So can we can we highlight a little bit about what's going on with them? Sure. I would love to. So teens are a very important population, and a couple reasons why. You know, when you in development, you know, your parents are kind of taking care of all your needs. And for food allergy, they're taking care of your food. You know, oftentimes you rely on your parents or you eat at home. And as you go into the teenage years, you're socializing more and you want to go out to eat. And that's one of the most common things teens do. You know, they go get food (laughs) and, and hang out together. And so it's really challenging for these teens. One, they're developing independence, which all teens do, but now they're having to do it with a food allergy. And having to talk about that or being that kid who's like, oh, well, I can't go there or, oh, can I, should I ask them if there's, you know, nuts in this food? Like, it's embarrassing. We really wanted to understand, you know, what may be helping them or hurting them in their risk-taking. So teens inherently have more risk-taking in general, but then with their food allergy, how do we reduce their risk-taking? And so a couple things we found, which were really interesting, were that one of the biggest things that helped teens was their support systems. And it goes all back to the peers, right? So if their peers were supportive, they tended to take less risk. They felt comfortable. You know, if their friend is saying, hey, let's go somewhere that's safe for my friend, or if their friend is saying to the waiter, oh, but my friend has a milk allergy, uh, it made them feel so much more comfortable than them having to bring it up themselves or ask, oh, can we go somewhere for me, right? So uh, peer support was really important. Now, what we found was that male students said that other male friends, about uh, half were supportive and about, you know, about 30% would know what to do if they had a reaction. Female students, it was much greater. It was almost like 70% of their female friends were supportive and over 50 would know what to do if something happened. And that's inherently, you know, male-female differences, but that's something we need to watch out and really encourage. The interesting part was in general classmates, if you just looked at their overall classmates, teens were telling us that only 50% were supportive of their food allergy. So about 50% may not be. And only 10% they felt like would actually be able to help if they had an allergic reaction. So uh, I think what that goes to is the increased awareness again. You know, we have to push out uh, peer-to-peer messaging. And we did that through these videos that we made for teens. And we asked teens what they wanted in the video. So it goes through 
what a reaction is. It actually goes through a child having a reaction and their friends helping them use the epinephrine and uh, talking about what happens next. And so uh, that, those are all freely available on our website. But a lot of people are doing a ton with teens. And then the next stage of their life is college. And so now that schools are getting better about management, at least have stock epinephrine, most of them, and some trained personnel, we need to work on colleges because that's really when these teens are going in full-on independence, living on their own, having roommates, going to dining halls, going out to eat all the time. And we need to make sure at that age that they are truly safe. The messages that we can give for our moms and our teens and our college-bound listeners is just building a community, I guess, is like the real message, right? Like from all your data is just making sure that you're telling the people that you know care about what's going on and your new friends in college about what the situation is. Definitely. I mean, I know whenever I have a college bound food allergic patient, the first thing I say is you you have to tell your roommates. Like that's just one thing that one group of people that really have to know about what's going on are your roommates are the people that are living with you. I always get that kind of surprised look on their face that I'm even mentioning that or that had a couple kids say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And it's just kind of like that conversation goes continues. And I tell them about why it's so important. And I think just we need to have those conversations from my personal experience in university. I told a lot of people and that was just because of the situation of like people snacking and touching things because I studied theater so people would snack and then they would touch props and then I would touch props and it made me really stressed out. So I would tell them all, okay, I have food allergies so if you don't snack on peanuts in the classroom and touch everything and years later they still say, you know, I still advocate for people with food allergies because you told me that and I never even considered how me snacking on peanuts and touching that doorknob could affect someone and it's just really I think important to remember that you're also creating other advocates and you're paving the way for so many other people you might not know down the line are going to have a positive impact you know it's it's embarrassing and it can feel weird that you're like oh I don't want to be demanding but you're really helping a community and you're helping everyone feel safer in the long run. That's what I like to tell people. It's like, it's you, but the impact that you might have is so much greater when you do stand up for yourself and you do advocate. Wow. That's, that's really beautiful. And I think all of that messaging is so important. And I think that also is why I know Courtney and I are so interested in making sure what people, what we kind of already touched on, Richie, is just how important it is to know what is a true allergy and what is an intolerance because, or sensitivity, intolerance, however you want to word it, because those two things are just so different. And if that knowledge isn't out there, then people do get more lax and they're not as concerned about someone saying, oh, I can't eat this, 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 that, because they just don't understand. Is it, is it something really life-threatening or is it just going to give you a stomach ache? Right. And what often happens with food allergy also is you go years, you're careful and you don't have a reaction and then you become a little bit more complacent. And especially in teens, I hear this a lot uh, that, oh, I hadn't had a reaction forever. And so I stopped carrying my epinephrine and, and then they have a very severe anaphylactic episode. And so I think 
you know, just keeping that message in their brains. Oftentimes, I think teens really feel like they're completely invincible. And that's why they take all these risks, because they can do anything and be fine. It's a message that needs to, to keep being said. But I, I have to also say one thing that was really cool about the survey is we did ask the teens what positive things may have come out of you having a food allergy. And some of the qualities we would all wish in our kids are the things they said. And one was they became more responsible which we all want responsible kids and students and adults. And then they had more empathy. So they could relate more or, or felt more for people with other conditions. Those two things. And then the third big one was they could advocate for themselves. So they could advocate for themselves in this area of food allergy, but hopefully that goes over to other aspects of their life. And then other smaller things were uh, that they ate healthier and they appreciated their food more. So very, very good positive things that these kids are showing. Yeah, I think it's so important to highlight the positives because we do tend to focus on all the things that are kind of negative because we want to highlight those too. But I think for parents listening and for teenagers listening and for just anyone listening, it's nice to know that there are some positive aspects to all of this, things that you can learn from living with a chronic condition. Yeah, I think you can always spin it to the positive. It's like, oh, you can't eat anything. Well, actually, I can eat pretty much everything as long as it doesn't have this, 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 and this. And if it does, I can always find an alternative. And we live in a time where there are so many alternatives that a lot of us don't feel like we have that limited of a diet anymore because we like to think we have options. Like everyone, we have options. They're just a little bit different. We have to think a little bit differently. We have to open our minds to what we can have. I think that's the nice thing is to spin it. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like we've come so far. I've been studying food allergies for 15 years. And back then, schools had no policies. You know, no one really understood anything about food allergies. And all you would get is, oh, what is that? When I was your age, we didn't have things like that. <laughs> you, know, you still hear that a lot. But um, but I feel like in 15 years, the awareness has increased so much. And it, maybe it's because these, you know, two in every classroom have a food allergy. But these kids are getting older, you know, that, that big, uh, increase that we saw. Now these kids are continuing with their food allergies and going to college and becoming adults. And so increasing that awareness and that empathy and that we're a community and we take care of each other. And, you know, we always say, you know, everyone's got something. So, you know, food allergies is one of those somethings. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.